If you're a woman in the United States, you probably get a pap smear every couple of years to make sure you don't get cervical cancer. Women in developing countries don't have this opportunity. In fact, 800 women die of cervical cancer in developing countries every day. Prevention International No Cervical Cancer, or PINK, is fighting to stop this. We are stepping up our work in Africa this year, and we need your support to bring cervical cancer prevention programs to both East and West Africa. PINK asks that you step out to save women's lives at our fourth annual Walk for Women of Africa on Saturday, September 8th at Lake Merritt, Oakland, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. All proceeds directly benefit our training and screening programs. Please visit us at our website at www.pincc.org or call 510-452-2542 to register or donate. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is a minute past 3 o'clock. Up next, cover to cover. My name is Raina Cowan, and I'm here for the next half hour talking about film and thinking about film. We're going to talk about two films today. We have the wrong mic here. Okay, now this is better. Raina Cowan here talking about film. We're going to talk about two films today. Uh, the first is Bill W., a new documentary about the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we'll be speaking with the directors of that film. And following that, we're going to be speaking with Maureen, Gar- Maureen Gosling about the films of Les Blank that have screenings this coming week as he's honored at Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley. So first we'll stop start with Bill W. It's the new documentary about the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, it's the story of William G. Wilson. So with me on the phone are the two directors of the film, D- Dan Caraccino and Kevin Hanlon. Welcome to KPFA. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hi, Raina. Yeah, this is Dan. Thank you very much. Oh, great. So it's so interesting that you made this film about Bill W. When I saw that this film was happening, my first thought was, my goodness, this is a film that should have happened years ago. This is kind of amazing that nobody actually thought about it, and then here it is. So it, it tells a very interesting story about the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935, and um, this is both of your first film, and I think that you had probably some very interesting struggles in terms of telling this story. The first thing that comes to mind is um, the word anonymous, um, and the whole idea of that Bill W. was W. rather than his full name, and you're telling uh, a biographical look about him. So how did you think about that, and how did the two of you talk about it from the beginning? Kevin, you want to take that? Uh, sure. Um, well, uh, it, it all really started, um, Dan and I have been friends since we were in high school, and uh, Dan had always wanted to make a film, and he would... Uh, he would tell me that, you know, on and off over the years. Uh, at one point he moved to California, so I was still living in New York near where we grew up and he was in California. And, uh, at the point where he really began to get serious about it, I was reading a, 
a book which is still the authoritative history of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called Not God, and it was written by Ernest Kurtz, who's, uh, who appears in the film. And I thought it was a great story, and I told Dan about it, and when I told him a little bit about it, he thought it might make a great film, too. And one of the first things we did uh, was to look around to see if anybody had made a feature-length documentary about this, and... To, and we were as surprised as you just said you were when we found out nobody had done it. Um, so we dove in and we started working on it. And uh, about a year or a year and a half, a year and a half into it, we kind of looked at each other and said, "What a couple of fools, maybe. No, no wonder nobody's ever done this. It's an anonymous man who founded an anonymous society, and we had." almost no pictures and no moving footage of him. Uh, what we did have was an incredibly rich audio archive because uh, the way that anonymity came to be understood in AA, no, nobody had any problems with Bill or other AA members being recorded at podiums. So we had this incredibly rich audio archive which allowed us to, uh, to a large extent, have Bill Wilson tell his own story. Um, but we had to go on faith for a little while uh, about the visuals, and that was that, that was a, a you know a challenge and a problem. But we stuck with it, and eventually, the visual materials we needed began to come to us. They began to emerge over time as we kept looking and, and searching for it. What I thought the strength of the film was was capturing um, the angst that actually seemed to never leave. Um, Bill Wilson in terms of his depression, his anxiety, his insecurity. Uh, so at the same time that he is founding something that actually helped him stop drinking, he also has to negotiate with the Bill Wilson, who is the private person who can't somehow go to AA himself because he's become so famous in it. Yeah, I would say... Well, it's funny, we do a lot of question and answers after film, uh, you know, after the film when we are opening in different cities. This is Dan, by the way. And, um, one of the questions that has come up a couple of times has been, what did you find most surprising in making the film? And when we were doing our research on it, you know, the first place we started with was with the histories of AA. And, um, the thing that really surprised us was how much Bill Wilson wanted to be away from AA. It's something that emerges very early on. He, he, he's constantly trying to get away from this thing that he founded. And I don't mean running away from it. He felt this great responsibility. And I think he also felt a great blessing in, in having realized that he could communicate to people a, a way to get out of what was previously a hopeless situation. But it was really something where he wanted to carve out a life for himself. And so you had mentioned that they, and correctly, that the, the, that the society was founded in 1935. And we saw letters as early as what, Kevin, 1939, where he's talking about, oh, about one more year and I'll be able to, you know, move on from this thing. This thing will be mature enough to stand on its own. And there's just this recurrence of that throughout. And it is that whole desire to sort of carve out a life for himself, um, and he's never able to do it, really. 
Yeah, and if I if I can just uh, if I can just jump in and add the two quick points about that, I one of the things I think Dan and I found most remarkable about him, uh, there was in 1940, as Dan was just saying, he he actually thought that that he had done all he needed to do for AA and, and was actually a little worried about what he would do next, but he thought that that was over for him at that point. And then later in 1945, uh, he had all but worked out a sort of separation agreement with AA and then later in the 50s was trying to do the same thing and yet whenever he tried to do that it became clear to him and everybody else around him that he was really needed and that AA would not be able to continue to grow and to remain stable if he left and he never said no I mean it was um, pretty remarkable the degree to which he was willing to sacrifice his personal interests uh, you know, for the good of AA. And the other thing that I'm struck by in all of this is, um, you know, and, and, and neither Dan nor I are members of AA. We're not alcoholics, but I've come, I've been very struck in speaking to all the members of AA that we have in making the film how much it seems that isolation is always at the core of alcoholism or, or even other addictions. And Wilson created this program, this fellowship that allowed him initially and then others to to step out of the kind of isolation that was part of their alcoholism. And yet in this, this almost cruel irony, he was thrust, I think, into a very different kind of isolation later in his life because he was raised up on this pedestal as the icon, the head of AA. And I don't think anybody else experienced that second kind of isolation the way he did. It was, um, you know, he wasn't able to to be a member of the very thing he founded because just by human nature, people began to worship him no matter how hard he begged them not to. And he spent a lot of time begging people not to not to do that to him, but to no avail. It was a really interesting moment when you're talking about, uh, I guess, when he started figuring out, well, what could this structure need to be? Because it seemed like there was a lot of antagonism that started happening in the groups and a lot of racism and a lot of other issues. And he basically said somewhere in the film, I don't have the exact words, that people who are angry drunks, when they stop drinking, they're sober angry drunks, that there's some way where he had to come up with a strategy to kind of provide containment or organization so that uh, people could actually be in a room together and keep working. And that seems like the brilliance of what he was able to do. That, that is absolutely the brilliance of what he does. I think most people, if you, if you stop somebody on the street and say, did you ever hear the 12 steps, most people would say yes. But if you ask that same person if you ever heard of the 12 traditions, invariably they'd say no. It's, it, and, but that's his legacy as much as the steps because he does figure out a way to keep these people together and he does it by taking what is their weakness and turning it into their strength and what I mean by that is that he was being encouraged by a number of people to be much more authoritarian in the way he was going to structure the society and he, and he doesn't do this alone, by the way. You'd mentioned that he's the founder. He's actually a co-founder because he does this with Dr. Bob. But Dr. Bob dies in 1950, and he's left with this, you know, for the next 20 years of his life. Um, but but the, the thing that he does in terms of his turning his weakness into a strength is he says, look, we don't need any great authoritarian figure in this society. We don't need, um, we don't need a hierarchy. Uh, 
alcohol, what he would call John Barleycorn, is our enforcer. If people stray too far, they'll relapse. And so he, he gives the groups tremendous autonomy um, to do what they want to do. And there's, there's this great quotation of his that I, I, that I love. Kevin knows what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> there's this letter that somebody writes and they say something along these lines, like, hey, our group isn't being as good as they can be. And he writes back and he says, um, yeah, I, I used to feel the same way. And he, I don't think he ever really did. But he, was trying to, he was trying to instruct this man. And he says, we, we have found it almost axiomatic that the worst that the worst can do is never so bad as the fear and intolerance of the well-meaning. And it's really a really gets at the core of how he structured that that fellowship. I, yeah, I think and uh, Dan is dead on in all of that. And the, 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 just a couple of things I'd add to it. Um, what I find so amazing about the traditions and the rest of the way in which Bill structured AA was that he was able to formulate something that was incredibly flexible and, and would allow groups an enormous amount of autonomy and at the same time had this resilience and strength. I mean, it's this really remarkable combination of flexibility and strength um, and he always seemed to know where that line was where there was room to let people have autonomy and then where where he had to make it strong enough to hold people together and you know as Dan was pointing out lots of people know about the 12 steps and Wilson was brilliant in writing the 12 steps but there were a lot of precedents for the 12 steps I mean he himself said that he was taking spiritual principles he had he had gathered elsewhere and, and then you know putting them into the 12 steps but there's really no precedent at all for the 12 traditions um and the only other thing i wanted to say i mean it, it, you're absolutely right that you know sometimes there's still some residual anger or resentment among alcoholics and and you know people become sober but they don't become perfect that's for sure but to a large degree too uh aa is influenced by the society around it and some of the problems that we we touch on in the film such as racism or women coming into the program and things like that were reflections of the society around AA and, and Wilson Wilson was always ahead of his times I think in terms of a certain kind of tolerance and openness and I I, I myself it's just my personal feeling but I think you see that reflected in the traditions and the structure of AA he was He's always pushing people to be a little more tolerant and a little more open than, you know, things might have been around them at that time. It's a really interesting film that opens up, well, actually, it's been playing everywhere. It's been um, getting a lot of very positive uh, attention. It's playing at the Roxy in San Francisco, the Rialto in Elmwood, and it starts a week-long run at the Smith Rafael in San Rafael. We're speaking with Dan Caraccino and Kevin Hanlon. This is their first film, Bill W. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on KPFA. Marina, thank you so much for having us. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for having us on the show. Okay, terrific. Bill W., the film of the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And now we'll move on to um, Bay Area filmmaker Maureen Gosling, who's here with me in studio. And Maureen is uh, a well-known director, uh, uh, editor, and 
local filmmaker as well and a producer. And she's currently working on a film about Chris Strockowitz, who is a KPFA alum who was here for many years in our Hooli Records. But she also worked for a number of years with Les Blank and still is quite um, allied with him. There's a series at Pacific Film Archive that started last month and runs through um, this Sunday night and then the following Thursday with two of uh, some of the greatest films by Les Blank. There is Garlic is as Good as Ten Mothers and Burden of Dreams. And Maureen's here to talk about them. So, Maureen, welcome to KPFA again. Thank you. Now, it's interesting. Um, for a lot of these films, like for uh, Garlic is Good as Ten Mothers, it's less blank with Maureen Gosling. What does the with mean? <laughs> well, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, less usually is the one that, that raises the money and um, is the cinematographer and has the sort of the less blank brand. And so at each stage of the films, I always tried to really f- sort of um, position where I really, f- what my role really was in the filmmaking process so that the and or the with would reflect the the way that I felt like I really was a participant. For example, with, with garlic, the garlic film, I that was before I started to be an editor and I was still an assistant editor and sound recordist. And so, um, Les's role was a much stronger role because he did the bulk of the editing. I did a little bit of editing at the end. It was sort of my, my dipping my toes into editing at that point. This is, we're talking 1978. Um, although it took about four or five years for the film to be made. Les started shooting probably in the mid in the mid 70s and we didn't finish till 79 because um it was sort of an odd idea for a film and it took him a while to get some funding but he started shooting at Chez Panisse during their Bastille Day garlic dinners and we filmed for, at least four of them in a row so four years um it meant that we got to eat all the food, which was fabulous. <laughs> and that was kind of the core of the story that that really got him kind of jump-started into um, the idea of pursuing the topic deeper. Well, if we're thinking about Les Blank, and you said the Les Blank thing, like what are the ways that you would describe that? How does Les Blank differentiate himself from other filmmakers? Well, when he started, um, he created this style, which was kind of unusual at the time and and in some ways is still sort of unusual. Uh, The editing of his film, like Lightning Hopkins film, The Blues Accord on Lightning Hopkins, was very kind of intuitive and poetic rather than, um, you know, a narrator guiding you and telling you what what's going on and he really was going for feeling and feeling connections between the scenes as well as the feelings of the music and the content of what people said or the images really had to be evocative of an emotion and the it the for example that that film has held up really well over time and I think it is because it's based on feeling rather than like 
Lightning Hopkins was singing during the Civil Rights Movement. But there's no reference whatsoever to the Civil Rights Movement. It's sort of above history, above time, and it it it, it still has resonance. Uh, the themes of the films have often been music or musicians. Uh, and then he also got into some quirky subjects like garlic and gap-tooth women. And then he got into Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog eats his shoe. And um, actually, that film is playing um, along with the garlic film. And for those who uh, are coming, you will see the connection between Werner Herzog eats his shoe and the garlic film. <laughs> they were shot around the same time. And that was kind of Werner Herzog's screen test for Burden of Dreams, which we filmed a year or two later. That's right, and Burden of Dreams, which is the story of the making of Fitzcarraldo and showing uh, the craziness or the tenacity or the impulsiveness <laughs> or the, All of those the things. destructiveness. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about the shoe. It's about <laughs> what uh, Werner Herzog did over time. So that there's some way where what you're talking about is that Les Blank has come up with his own melody about how to put a film together, which is really different than um, somebody else telling that story. Although he did really open up the world for other people telling more kind of ethnographic, um, spot-on personal films as well. That's probably true. Um, certainly opening up the value of culture as subjects for films or use having culture as part of stories. Um, and the... I mean, some of the some of the films are sort of per, portraits, like Lightning Hopkins, a Well Spent Life about Mance Lipscomb, um, <clears throat> the film about Werner Herzog. Although that was a bigger story, um, but you do have one main character. Uh, but some of the other films are more about cultural phenomenon, like polka dancing in the East and the Midwest, and Heaven There Is No Beer, and Jivoli medicine for the heart about Serbian and Croatian music and culture. So um, there's kind of, I guess, a little constellation of subjects. And they're usually, um, they're not like hitting you over the head with political commentary at all. They're sort of implicit just in the subject themselves or the the focus on, you know, marginal quote-unquote cultures or people or poorer people and just the fact that of the subject itself and the point of view about the subject uh, tells you it certainly takes a, a political position but not in any sort of definitive politically um, named or labeled way well it's really interesting because I think that comedies and less blank films are films that are better to not watch by yourself. Um, and I think that for less blank films, because there's something about seeing that kind of culture with an audience that you, it's sort of infectious. And I'm wondering about when you were editing the films that you did, how you thought about that, how you used the audience or what you imagined the audience's emotional response because there's something being tracked there as well not just the um the emotions of the characters who are being filmed well the the emotion in the 
that's chosen in the editing needs to be very authentic. And that's one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that we are constantly on the lookout for is people being themselves and people being authentic and also having um, aspects of the stories that you can't help but be pulled in by and feel connections with the people because everybody eats and if you if you have shots of beautiful food and people eating these foods you you feel the connection of the the shared experience of eating food or dancing and you see these people dancing in great images of the people's expressions on their faces when they're the joy of the dancing or the you know if it's a slow dance or the blues um and so it's more uh, uh let's see i sort of lost my train of thought well let me, let me it's one of the things that's interesting about Liz blank is that his films are so lively and so engaging to watch and Les himself is really kind of a i don't know sort of a, a hermit in his own mind kind of he's like there's something very um uh unreachable about him so I, I don't know you've worked very closely with him i'm sure you've seen the other side about that but it is interesting how there's this one part that's so internal and yet what he's able to capture is something so different i think it's well he has said it before that that is what really attracts him to the subjects that they do have the liveliness and in some ways he doesn't feel like he's like that but he definitely has a side to him that's like very funny and so the films have a lot of humor they have a lot of uh, joy in them and they really have but they also have a mix I mean there's there's poignant moments there's funny moments and uh, there's color there's contradiction there's um, you know pointing out either, um, you know, uh, ac actions that people are doing that you don't need words. They're just things that you can see someone doing and you totally get it. Um, and he has said that he likes to shoot things that appeal to him. I mean, it's plain and simple. And then um, in the editing, we try to keep in the things that are give you that same kind of effect. So you have two opportunities to see these films. Uh, uh, Garlic is as good as Ten Mothers is playing at Pacific Film Archive this Sunday um, at 7 o'clock p.m. in Berkeley. And uh, Les will be there, and you'll be there as well. Mm -hmm. And then on Thursday, August 30th, you can see Maureen herself talking about the editing and and also about taking sound for Burden of Dreams, which is the documentary focused on Werner Herzog's obsessive drive to make his 1982 film Fitzcarraldo in um, the, <laughs> the jungles in South, Afri South America. So really very interesting films. Uh, so Maureen, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And the garlic film that will be shown in Aroma Round, uh, you might like to find out what that is. And so hopefully some of the luminaries that are in the film will be showing up. And if any of you out there were uh, 
part of that scene do show up on Sunday. We look forward to seeing you. Pacific Film Archive can be reached at 510-642-1412. I want to end with uh, something that I'm going to be doing on September 14th. I'm really very, you know, I'm both a therapist and uh, a film critic, and I'm really interested in the intersection of the two. Uh, I'm going to be highlighting a program entitled The Frame, The Screen, The Stage, looking at the intersection between psychoanalysis, theater, and film. It's featuring Deborah Melman, who is a Bay Area a therapist, very interesting thinker, and Zoe Elton, who's in charge of the Mill Valley Film Festival. It's happening through the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. If you want more information, you can contact them at 415-288-4050. It's September 14th at 6 p.m. It's a second Friday series on arts and culture, and it's a $20 general admission and free for students. Um, and I will be there as a moderator. So I look forward to seeing you then, and if not, I'll be back for my show the last Friday in September. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Raina Cowan, and today we talked about Bill W., the film that's opening and playing at the Roxy, the Rialto Elmwood, and the Smith Raffel, and the series about Les Blank that's playing at Pacific Film Archive at the UC Berkeley campus. Thanks for listening. The Oakland East Bay Gay Men's Chorus invite you to Red, Hot, and Fabulous on August 25th at the Greek Orthodox Cathedral of the Ascension in Oakland. This concert is an eclectic mix of solos, duets, and ensembles backed by a live band. The show also features the premiere of two new arrangements for men's chorus by Dr. Kathleen McGuire. She has arranged If People Like Me Marry by Paul James Franz and Potluck by June Bonisich. Celebrate summer with an evening of fun, food, and music. This event is hosted by the San Francisco-based comedy duo Fifi and Fanny, and there will be a silent and live auction with a wide range of prizes. Red Hot and Fabulous is a benefit for the Oakland East Bay Gay Men's Chorus. Partial proceeds from this concert will also benefit the Lighthouse Community Center in Hayward. For more information, go to oebgmc.org or call 1-800-706-2389.